also were in First Thessalonians uh, chapter four, and our title is "Please God, Pleasing God More and More." Um, so my proposal is we'll let's read the first twelve verses of First Thessalonians four. I want to dip back into chapter one for a few verses and then we'll kind of unpick it together. So 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that is, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then going back to chapter one for um a few verses just picking verse four to eight chapter one for we know brothers loved by god that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the holy spirit and with deep conviction you know how we lived among you for your sake how you became imitators of us and of the lord in spite of severe suffering you welcome the message with joy, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out for you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. That'll do for um, the reading. Um, and may God bless that to us. Just a very quick recap. Um, I've, I've enjoyed the preparation um, and found myself um, not being able to just dip into 12 verses. I had to go back to chapter one and read through to the end of the, of the letter. And then I found myself um, straying into letter number two and reading that too. And I just kind of get um, enthusiastic by the whole concept of the uniqueness of this community, which were the churches of God um, at that time, newly planted. Uh, David Woods took us back to 
Acts 17, where we hear about the first interactions and the, uh, the planting of the church in Thessalonica. And it's hard really to discern precisely, but most would say that Paul was only there for three or four weeks uh, and the church was established. Um, scholars also say that this is the first letter that we have access to. So you that the Paul wrote, not just the first letter to the Thessalonians, but his first letter to any church. So you kind of get the sense that this is a fledgling church. Um, Paul was really rushed away from the church because of the persecution. They, the, the disciples there feared for his life. So they insisted that he uh, was taken away from them. And the persecution that had started when Paul was there continued. So Paul had this real burden for a fledgling church that he himself had known persecution while he was there. Um, and his concern wasn't just for the spiritual survival in very difficult circumstances, but his concern was that they were thriving. And of course, that was the report that Timothy um, came back with Paul, sent Timothy because they wouldn't let him go because it was too risky. So he sent Timothy to get a report on this new church. And Timothy comes back and he says, Paul, it's a model church. And that's what we read in, um, in when we went back to chapter one. I love the expression in verse seven of uh, chapter one. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord's message rang out from Yotonia, Macedonia, and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. If you look on a map, um, Macedonia and Achaia are two adjacent districts. And if you kind of look briefly, and I haven't studied this, the geography in depth, but you get Berea, where there was a church uh, in uh, Macedonia. And Corinth is just a little to the southwest of uh, Thessalonica. It just smacks to me of a district and you have the church, the churches interacting with each other. I've just been on a Zoom today with uh, the churches in Myanmar, five different churches in Myanmar all together. Um, and, you know, thousands of miles. The world is such a small place today. Um, in those days, of course, that wasn't possible. But you have Paul um, passionate about the new disciples that he's been involved in leading to the Lord, involved in planting the church. Um, involved in what they're going through himself, so persecution, and his letters are just there to encourage them. And we've got to a point in the letter where he's kind of stopped talking about the past and the, the history that he had with them, as brief as it was, and he's now talking to them about the future. And the, the question in my mind um, is, what do you say to a church of God that's already got the reputation of being a model to all disciples. Well, let's uh, have a think about that by unpicking what, what we've read in chapter four. He says that he wants them to continue living to please God. Now, what, once we're saved, carrying on for God, I think is all about motivation. And it makes me ask the question, what was it that Paul wanted their motivation to be 
for continuing to please God. And I think it's embodied in the first word of the first verse when it says, finally, it's a kind of curious thing because in English, we might think, well, this is now the final thing that he's going to say. But of course, it wasn't the final thing he was going to say. There's a, a whole lot more comes after it. Um, a whole lot more important stuff. I think what he's saying is having dealt with the gospel, and we were hearing about that from Giles um, last week, on, on actually on Tuesday, reflecting back on, on his um, enjoyment of doing his research into the letter. Um, so um, Paul has explained how they were very receptive in a positive way to the gospel and all that it meant and all the changes that happened. And when he says finally, it means he says, well, what remains then? So in that context, what remains is for us to live um, lives that are pleasing to God. In other words, in considering the gospel, in considering the immense cost and the revelation of God's love to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, then what remains is our response, and that is to please God. The word pleasing is, uh, is interesting to look into. One um, definition I got from the, the Greek definition is exciting the emotions of the recipient. And I'm sorry to keep pointing us to my little granddaughter, but we take great delight. Our emotions are excited as we watch her development. And sometimes we're a bit bonkers. You know, you, you kind of um, think you see things that aren't really there. Things like, or hear things like, did she really say a word then? You know, and of course she hasn't at her age, but you spot a smile and it's just delightful. And you see uncoordinated movements of her hands and arms that slowly become coordinated uh, and she reaches out for things and her eyes respond to movement and light and her little voice she doesn't just cry these days she she tries to uh, vocalize something we don't know what it is and for parents and grandparents watching on it's just a delightful thing and that's what God wants he wants us to see he wants to be delighted, to be pleased, to have his emotions excited as he sees his newborns developing spiritually, his new creations that were created at such a great price. That's, um, that's really about our motivation. It's our natural response to our appreciation of God's love and what he's done. And from God's perspective, we want to bring him delight as uh, we develop and we turn into the people that he intended us to be and we become the um, the expression of the Lord Jesus Christ that's the ultimate as we move on to maturity but we'll speak a little more about that in a later later still in uh, in verse one he says now I ask and urge you two expressions is it is it kind of tautology uh, using two words to say the same thing. Um, there's just a, an earnestness about this with Paul. Um, he's um, asking them and urging them to please God. I think it, it's a demonstration of his concern because he knew about their persecution. Um, the word urge 
um, actually has the same origin as the um, parakletos, the word that the Lord Jesus used for the Holy Spirit, which means to draw alongside. And for me, maybe it's a, a little nod to the um, fellowship that there was, even from a distance, between Paul and the, and the disciples in Thessalonica. He himself was going through persecution, and they were alongside each other, even from a distance. And he was um, sharing as one who'd been there before in his own spiritual development. He was sharing in the development process. So he's urging them as one who's experienced to um, devote themselves to pleasing God. You know, that's fellowship. That's real fellowship when we're in it together, um, whatever age or uh, circumstances we find ourselves in. We're side by side, we're uh, called together people, and we're each developing at our own pace, and we can encourage and help each other in our endeavour to please God. They were to please God more and more. It's interesting, that's where we get our title, pleasing God more and more, for this particular section. And it occurs twice, once in verse 1. Uh, in the context of pleasing God more and more. And then in verse nine, where he's encouraged them, encouraging them into brotherly love more and more. It's a really interesting verse in First Peter that I think gives us some help with this idea of more and more. We said the church was a model church. And um, if it's a model church, then where else can they go? You know, had they reached perfection? And I don't think that's the thought at all. If we go to 1 Peter 1 and 22, and it's actually a very similar context. It's about um, demonstrating love for each other and living pure lives. 1 Peter 1 and 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for the brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And that expression deeply literally means to, to stretch out the hand. Uh, other versions say more fervently or without ceasing. And you just get the, the sense that wherever we are in our Christian experience, there's always a stretch. You know, there's always a, a, another place we can move forward to. It's not like we've ever arrived. And that's what... Um, Paul is encouraging the, the Thess Thessalonians in the Christian development, in their endeavor to please God, wherever you're at. If you're living a pure life and it's delightful to God as he, his emotions are excited at your spiritual development, then there's still more to go. And I, I just think that's a lovely challenge for us that wherever we are in our own spiritual journey, then... Uh, we can do a bit more, we can experience a bit more, whether it's the um, opportunity to serve, we can serve a bit more, whether it's our relationship with the Lord Jesus, we can enjoy him a bit more, um, whether it's our interaction with each other, then there is progress to be had at whatever stage we are. So um, in the back in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, 
it's the more and more of verse one in relation to pleasing God. And it's the more and more of verse nine in relation to brotherly affection. We'll come to that a bit later. So for this model church of God, what specific instructions does Paul have for them to keep them on track in their endeavor to please God more and more? And under the umbrella of sanctification, I'm going to say that let's define sanctification in this context as being distinctive. So someone who is sanctified is different, is made different. Um, so Paul is saying under this umbrella of being distinctive, being different from what is around you, there are three things that they should be sensitive about. And they're not necessarily the three things that would naturally come to our, our own minds, I don't think. The first is about sexual purity. The second is about loving each other, specifically brotherly love. And the first is a third is about ambition. We'll, we'll just deal with these very briefly, one at a time. So let's go to verse three. Uh, verses uh, three to eight deal with this matter of sexual impurity. And bear in mind, this is a model church. So I don't think that Paul is necessarily saying there is a problem in the church, but he's raising a red flag saying, you are vulnerable in this area. It is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sin, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. It suggests to me that um, purity, uh, sexual purity, was something that needed to make the Thessalonian disciples distinctive. It's under this umbrella of sanctification. And isn't that so relevant to the world we live in? I haven't been around this world for, for very long, really, relatively speaking. But even in my short time, I can see huge uh, changes in sexual standards in our culture. And what Paul seems to be doing, and maybe it was already there in, in the Greek culture at the time, but what he's doing is uh, raising a red flag to the Christians in Thessalonica saying, this is a area of vulnerability and you will be a target of Satan in this area. And he points out three things. One is to avoid sexual immorality. Some versions say, fornication. It means any kind of sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. And that's the only setting that God invented sex for. And many, many um, passages in the New Testament that would help us go into the detail of that. But Paul's kind of laying this out and saying, you know, in the culture that you live, this is not normal. But in God's kingdom, this has to be 
the standard that needs to be upheld. Um, sex is a, a very beautiful thing, but it is in the context of a Christian marriage. Second area is self-control. Uh, I'm going to call it self-control, the antidote to lust. Um, it's what we let our eyes see. It's what we allow our minds to be occupied with that would lead to impurity and uh, an erosion of our holy living. Of our holy living. Job had a, an interesting solution to this. We read in Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, I would say that that's a really practical and helpful um, practice that we can have to overcome this uh, inevitable thing for all of us, um, that we allow our eyes to see things and our ears to hear things that would lead to impure sexual thoughts that are inappropriate and would erode our holiness. Make a covenant with ourselves and say, I'm not going to look at that and resolve not to let yourself down. Embodied in this passage is the um, presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's got a kind of two sides to it. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And um, the Holy Spirit is there and he's holy. So he's offended by these unholy things that um, can occupy us. But also he's there as a help to uh, enable, enable us to, under his control, to be robust in our practice of self-control. Let's move on to the second element. I'm going to say these three things are under the umbrella of sanctification, and it's about brotherly love. If we go to verse nine. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you to do it more and more. You know, the, the distinguishing mark of disciples of the Lord Jesus is um, that they may love each other. This is how you will know. This is how they will know you are my disciples, is that you have love for each other. Interestingly, on, on the call with, uh, in scene, sorry, with, with Moon Lai today, they were saying they celebrated their 44th year. And um, one of the things they seem to do, if I get the, the, the translation right, is that we told each other we loved each other. They'd not had the opportunity to, to be together as closely as they were today. And they just said it was appropriate for us to um, remind ourselves that we love each other. Uh, in verse nine, the brotherly love is filio. It's brotherly affection. You know, sometimes we, we seem to elevate agape, and maybe that's completely appropriate. It's the unconditional love that is associated with God's love for us. But we sometimes elevate that and say it's somehow superior to filio, which is brotherly affection. 
I'm not sure it's appropriate to do that. I, I feel that the relationship that we have with brothers, with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, um, filio, it's brotherly affection is very special and that should be cultivated. Having a, a love for each other should make us distinct, uh, distinctive. And I would just encourage us to be alert to things in our experience that would undermine that. Grudges and um, you know, having things that are misunderstandings that aren't dealt with can be so destructive in any community. And um, one of the things Paul was pointing out to the uh, saints here is you're vulnerable to that. Let's quickly move on to the third thing, which I'm going to call appropriate uh, ambition. It says in verse 11, make, your, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. It just struck me that um, who makes an ambition or who makes having leading a quiet life their ambition? And it's, it's something that the word distinctive uh, fits perfectly because in our, in our society, I think ambition is all about putting ourselves forward it's about celebrity. And um, here is Paul saying, that's not the Christian way. We're to be Christ-like. And that involves living a quiet life. And it's not um, getting involved in things we ought not to be involved with other people's business. It's about minding our own business. And it's about working with our hands. It's an interesting one, the working with our hands. We'll come back to that in the second letter because it does appear that there were some who were uh, criticized for being idle and not doing things. I'd just like to leave us with this challenge. It's, there's three challenges from um, what Paul is saying. It's about the pursuit of holiness and seen in our um, sexual purity. It's about um, being distinctive in the way we love each other and overcoming differences in a proactive way and having the love of Christ um, in our hearts for each other. And it's having appropriate ambition that we, as a humility, isn't there, shrouding these things, a quiet life, minding our own business and working with our hands, um, not being idle, that means. And the punchline is, is here that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that surely is our testimony going back to Giles's point about the gospel and how we might show the gospel um, and how much it means to us it's by living distinctive lives and that was the the burden that the apostle Paul had for his friends in this fledgling church in Thessalonica thank you